Welcome to the Yacht Law Podcast, the program that answers your legal questions about buying, selling, and owning super yachts, working aboard them, and more. Your hosts, maritime attorney Michael Moore and yachting journalist Diane Byrne, are here to help you better navigate the luxury yachting lifestyle. While we discuss legal issues, this is not intended as legal advice or a substitute for the personalized advice of your own attorney. Consider the Yacht Law Podcast as a starting point to educate yourself about the super yacht world. Welcome, everyone, to the Yacht Law Podcast. Michael, good to see you. Thanks, Diane. Good to see you. So where have you been recently? What's been uh, what's new and what you've been seeing out in the world? Well, I think the yacht world is uh, alive and well and strange and wonderful places. I was in Lanzarote, which is in the Canary Islands. Uh, it really a full marina, full of yachts, either heading east uh, and north to the Mediterranean or heading uh, west uh, to cross the Atlantic on the trades. It's a very famous uh, stopping off point. A lot of yacht owners uh, and yacht yachty types know it very well. It's a crazy volcanic group of islands. Uh, and I was there, among other things, to watch some of the Olympic trials. Very yeah, cool. It was a lot of fun. Neat. Now, did you go to the, the Miami Boat Show also? I did. The Miami Boat Show uh, this year, I think, was uh, quite uh, quite nice. Um uh, one, of, one of the high points for me was the little drone display that Informa put on for all of the attendees, which they had probably 50 drones, uh, you know, signing and saying, welcome to Miami, welcome to the Miami Boat Show. It was it's just something I have not seen before. I'm told that some people said they've seen that thing, that technology before, but it's just a lot of fun. It had uh, the mandatory uh, martini glasses toasting in, in the air. <laughs> uh, it was right. uh, really a good time was had by all and uh, you know all the usual suspects were present so it was great awesome well i'm sure all the people who came boat shopping for the first time were pretty impressed with that too it sounds like it was pretty neat to see mm-hmm. so on that subject of people shopping for new boats um there's been a lot of really interesting news lately in the uh marketplace there was the news that came out recently about Princess Yachts selling to a U.S. investor. What did you think about that? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's interesting because um, I've had uh, you know personally some involvement with some of the you know things that are moving around in the yacht space. I think that the uh, I haven't looked into who acquired Princess Yachts, but I think that's uh, a sort of more of the same. Uh, you know, for the for example, one of my favorite groups, the Italian. Uh, uh, C Group uh, uh, is uh, building some wonderful yachts, and they were recently acquired and reorganized, and they're reorganizing some of the brands that are rather legendary, like uh, Picciotti and uh, Trin- uh, Perini Navi. And uh, I, th- I think that's kind of shows the vibrancy of the yacht world. And, um, you know, it's it's just kind of great to see it because I, I particularly love the, the, the great Perini Navis, you know, Maltese Falcon and um, and so on, just go on from there. I mean, it's it's amazing uh, what they've created. It's so wonderful to see them reorganizing that group. Of course, there are big brands coming out, it seems, as the Admiral line, which I think is uh, 
you know, they're building some great yachts and people are talking about them and you can get them at a very attractive prices and they're Northern European quality. And, uh, it's really, it's really something that it's, it's beautiful to see that taking place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Johnny Versace, uh, not Johnny Versace. Sorry. Oh, um, you're right. Uh, what is that guy's name? The great designer. Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> Armani, 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 my Armani. gosh, I had the wrong designer. <laughs> fantastic uh, video that was uh, the, the announcing the sale of the 73-meter uh, G, uh, GC Force uh, yacht. But, yes. Yeah, beautiful, yes, beautifully done. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. Yeah, they have some pretty some pretty impressive things going on between that 73-meter and uh, Armani's involvement with two other designs and then there's it seems like this month has been so fascinating from a a new news or new yacht i should say news standpoint because there was the information about the perini uh, not the perini sorry the italian sea group with their projects and Mm -hmm. then princess yacht selling to the investor and then um lurson doing two launches in one week right obviously they have very large shipyards and they have multiple shipyards on top of that but doing two launches in a week and the two yachts were nothing to sneeze Mm -hmm. at either 130 meter right was one Mm -hmm. of them yeah 145 in terms of uh luminance i think that the yeah you know lurson obviously everyone knows the brand it's uh um the the this new yacht the luminance was i think among the top seven or of uh, this ever been built by by lurson and, you know, they've had some legendary yachts. I mean, Flying Fox, uh, uh, once you see Flying Fox at night with its uh, underwater lighting that is so spectacular, it's just a, it's an absolute fantasy. And, of course, Espinwino always does a wonderful job. I think that someone said that was his 30th collaboration with uh, Lurson. And wow. you know, all the usual, you know, classic yachts, Dilbar, Crescent, and so forth. So, you know, Lurson's got its niche. Um and uh, it's doing well in the large super, you know, super mega yacht category, I would say. Yeah. I think we almost need a new term to describe them, like super mega giga giant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know. <laughs> and then they have the 90 meter, the uh, project 1601. Right. They're still not right. permitted to disclose the name. But it's funny because... The 90 meter is still a pretty significant size. And yet when you look at a 90 meter compared to 130, <laughs> it almost looks small by comparison. It's crazy. Yeah. You do find yourself wondering when will this end or will it ever end? And, you know, of course, it, it, there seems to be an intersection between some of the big brands, uh, uh, Ritz-Carlton and uh, now Four Seasons. I think Four Seasons is uh, building a spectacular yacht. Um, and they will offer that as, uh, you know, an intersection between individual yacht ownership and, and, uh, you know, multiple yacht owners and, a, and a, under a given platform. Uh, so I've had the pleasure of speaking with those people and they have, uh, they have the, you know, they have all the right players in Cantieri as a builder and, uh, they're hiring the right designers and all the things that goes into yacht construction. Um, and that's, and that's their motto. It's, uh, it's not, uh, cruising, it's yachting. So we'll see where that, where that leads. But I mean, of, of all the brands, I think, it, you know, Four Seasons is number one in every market it's in, except one in the entire world. Um, and, uh, to have them entering what is effectively a yacht space is, uh, you know, quite, quite exciting. 
Mm-hmm. Between them and Ritz Carlton, for sure, they're they're certainly trying to give their usual customer a much more high end experience and much more yacht like experience exactly. versus a, a traditional cruise ship. And they're effectively uh, challenging uh, the, the what's what used to be called the World and was re- rebranded uh, Residence uh, C. Um, and um, the that's a a, a vessel that has been very successful run by its owners. Uh, and basically you buy your own home afloat. Uh, you can fly in and out to your residence at sea. And uh, it's a yacht like experience with uh, all the yacht level service um, uh, and the staff to person ratios are the same. The number of guests on board is, uh, uh, less than the number of, uh, you know, uh, persons on board conducting the end, the hospitality space, uh, and all the things that go with that. So it's, it's an interesting time for the yacht world and I would include the projects in the yacht world. Right. You know, talking about all of these different projects from the, the projects that Lurson just launched, um, the boats that Princess will be delivering under the new ownership, um, the Italian Sea Group, even these more yacht-like vessels from the Four Seasons and the uh, the Ritz-Carlton, et cetera. There's a lot, obviously, going on in terms of new construction and a lot in terms of new people, new owners coming in and signing these contracts for the first time. I'm wondering if in the experience of your company, your team at Moore and Company, I would imagine there are certain things that unfortunately tend to go wrong more often than not, just out of, not because people are trying to do anything bad, obviously, but just because people don't know what they should have in the contracts, what they should anticipate as potential snafus. So are are there any things that you determine as a, that would be you know, common mistakes or common things that go awry. Right. Well, I, I can I can confirm that, uh, you know, it's the old adage, if any, anything can go wrong, it will go wrong. And I think in terms of the um, matters in the office that have uh, transitioned uh, uh, from construction to, uh, unfortunately, to some sort of contentious situation, uh, a lot of times they do involve new yacht owners. A, a lot of new wealth and new yacht owners want to build their own dream. So you have uh, troubles that come from the most unlikely spaces, uh, you know, from uh, vessels that are not being delivered on time. That that can that's a, a classic problem. It still exists today. It means that the construction contract a lot of times did not have a very clear delivery date and did not have a clear uh, provision for delay damages if the yacht is uh, not delivered on time. Those kind of things will do, actually make everyone happier at the end of the day because, you know, you feel like you're, okay, that's the contract I made and I, I agreed to the delivery date and for whatever reason it's not being observed uh, you know, things happen. Uh, I remember one particular year, it was the worst winter in Dutch in the Netherlands history. Um, uh, and it, it really did cause problems on uh, delivery schedules. We, what we have yesterday announced there was some kind of blizzard in the in the California or something. It's just un, un, unheard of in the history of weather patterns. Um, but I think that um, 
that's one example of uh, matters that uh, come up because the contract uh, drives the you know, drives the relationship with the new parties. I mean, you have your one-off problems with uh, 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 things that happen when the contract provides for delivery to occur, for example, in a place other than the yard. Uh, we had a case recently where a yacht was making its way from China to the United States West Coast, and it stopped off in uh, Korea, and uh, uh, it, cl- it collided with a crane, a delivery, a delivery crane. The boat was uh, going to be position. It was a nice yacht, a very nice yacht. It was over a hundred feet, but, uh, you know, unfortunately clobbered, uh, a, 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 a standing crane in a very well-known shipyard, uh, in, uh, Korea. So that led to a real problem because the owner now sees his yacht as, as being damaged and defective and not delivered in good order and condition. You get into what is called the perfect tender rule, which is when the yacht should, uh, be in perfect tender when it's when it's turned over to the owner so you you know you do have some unhappiness there but you know honestly the to your your specific point i think that you'll have people that have made fortunes in certain areas of the law but then they that their thinking just somehow doesn't roll over into yacht construction um i mean the first thing i would say and uh, kind of a long answer to um I think sometimes the courts say, is there a, is there a question pending? But the point is, <laughs> when you select the yard, uh, probably the, one of the most important things you do to build your dream, you know, is it the right yard for the dream you have? You know, and when you look at the yard, does it have too many yachts under construction? That's one thing. Or is this, does it have too few? Either, either way can be a sign of trouble. Uh, you want to get into the contract. You want to make sure that the contracting party is a is a known deep a deep pocket, and then you want to make sure that when you you know you enter into the agreements that you are defining the yacht of your dreams. You know what what is it that you you need to have a very clear specification uh, of what you know uh, you what the boat that you think you're giving. And believe me, you'll see contracts that are very thin, a uh, lot, very generalized, sort of what we call trust me, uh, contracts. Those, a lot of times those do lead to, uh, trouble. So you do need a clear set of specifications, uh, to, uh, to really drill down on exactly, you know, you know, not just when the boat will be delivered, but also when will the, when will the keel be laid, you know, you know, make sure you hold them to the schedule. Uh, and that that'll start the process of, uh, you know, making sure that you get a the boat you've, you're contracted for. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to making sure that those dates are specified in black and white, who needs to be involved in that conversation? Obviously, from your company's standpoint, the maritime attorney is involved, but who else should be part of the conversation? Should it be the shipyard's project manager as well as an owner's project manager, or should it just be the owner's project manager? I think it's I think it's uh, very clear not only for these decisions up front, but also the decisions that occur as you go. Probably one of the more, one of the more often seen problems is the buyer's decision. There, there. It's not clearly defined as to how the buyer 
makes decisions. And of course, they maybe they were they were in the tech business, and now the yard needs answers. Do you want it this way or do you want it that way? Do you want this color, that color? We've had some pretty serious uh, disputes over things like wood selections for some of the interior spaces. Um, and, um, and then you have other parties that you want to make sure are brought in from the very, very beginning. For example, the classification societies. If you're building to uh, a, a class, you know, class, what's called a classification society notation, you want to make sure that you understand what is meant by the notation from the classification society's point of view, because they're the ones who are the, uh, what I call the trust, but verify people. They have to sign off that things are being as built there, but they have, you have the design and then you have the stamp that says, this was what was contracted for. This is what was built. And that's the as built, uh, stamp that gets you to the next level. Um, and so at, at the very least, the, the, the yard representative, the owner, the owner's representative, bringing in some of the important third parties like the classification society, it's always very helpful to the process. In terms of dis- determining what is, I guess you would say, an accurate date to how can the owner's party determine whether or not the dates that the shipyard is providing in terms of a keel laying and in terms of a, del- a delivery date are actually realistic. When, uh, like you were saying before, when you see a shipyard that perhaps has a lot of projects going on, is there kind of a smoking gun in terms of those dates that you, you all say, yeah, that's not going to work? You know, how, how can the owner feel confident that the dates are going to be proper? Yeah, that's that's a that's a good one because you see these large yard, yards building these massive projects and you really wonder, you know, how good are they at predicting, you know, the delivery date, the scheduled delivery date, and what happens if they miss that. And one of the things that I think you want to see that you you have these milestones that are matched up to the uh, you know proper schedules of completion, you know, achieve these milestones. And then you, and once achieved, you have a procedure for confirming, then you have payments. The payment schedules will often be you know, you may have, I just saw one, I think it was early in the week and they had a, had 22 different payments and 22 different milestones. And until those milestones are reached, the, the next milestone payment is not due. So you can sort of rest assured that it, it, as long as you're meet, as long as you're meeting these milestones, you know, you're on schedule, uh, to, um, to get to where, um, you know, to, 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 to meet the scheduled delivery date. Um, I, I would also say, I think I just, it should be uh, just important to, to mention when you have, uh, at the very beginning, you specify, uh, as part of the general, uh, code to which the yacht is being built. For example, the MCA, what's called the MCA LY3, which means it's, uh, the code of practice for, uh, large commercial sailing and motor yachts. This this is actually issued by the Marine and Coast Guard Agency of the uh, United Kingdom. It's actually more than the Coast Guard. You'll hear people say it's kind of the Coast Guard of the 
of the of the United Kingdom. It is kind of that, but it's also more the flag states. There's some 11 overseas territories of the United Kingdom and the three crown dominions. They're all they all are part of the the so-called Red Ensign Group. So you also want to make sure they're involved, and they're and they're great about not being involved uh, more than they need to be. But it's vitally uh, important that they are because at the end of the day, they're the ones who are accepting the yacht into their flag. So the, the overall group is the MCA, and then you have the various flags underneath that. For example, the Cayman Island flag or the Bermuda flag, BVI flag, et cetera. So all everyone working together can kind of tell you, you know, I mean, I've been told sometimes off the record, you know, this yacht is definitely behind schedule. I'm getting concerned. We need to have a meeting. We need to pick up the pace and find out what the problem is. Um, and so everyone works as a team to keep everything moving forward. Uh, so there's no unhappiness uh, along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. On that same subject of things possibly going wrong, i Somebody was asking me recently, and this is something that I would I would definitely not have enough knowledge about. So I'm wondering if if you could shed some light on it. Somebody was asking me about commission claims mm-hmm. um, with with new construction sales. That sometimes there are issues between a a broker or known as representative of some other kind and, and a shipyard. Um, what are some of the common issues there, and and how do they get resolved? Right, and that's a that is actually kind of one of the most important subjects. Uh, you know, commit, nothing moves in the art world on buying and selling almost nothing without a broker. I mean, people want to talk about brokers. They, you know, anytime you're, you're paying large sums of money, you have uh, initial, you know, kind of industry standards, you know, and there's no, I mean, some, some would argue there's no such thing as an industry standard, but uh, I would say, if you had to say it and force somebody to say it, and I'm not an expert, I'm a lawyer. I'm only, a, I only hear, you know, repeat what people on the stand say. This is their testimony. And it, it, it sort of depends on whether you're representing a buyer or a seller, you know, which way you're trying to go. But once a broker initiates negotiations uh, to um, bring a buyer and a seller together, whether it's a yard or as a seller or a, a buyer, as a as a uh, the, the purchaser, they have actually earned their commission. Some of the other issues that may come into play are, um, you know, the, you know, the you'll hear yards from time to time. I have a case in the office where the yard basically says the broker didn't do enough, and he's protesting the payment. Uh, we have another case where the you know, the broker uh, she she did approach uh, the American arm of a very reputable yacht builder. Uh, something happened. She clearly introduced the client, uh, and and somehow things went awry, and she the phones went dead. She was not the calls were not returned, uh, and now there is a dispute. The complaint has been drafted. It will be filed, and the effort will be to collect. But a brokerage commission. Um, uh, is due and can be um, basically recovered even after the um, broker is out of the deal, if the broker is excluded. Uh, now, if the broker, uh, the expression one court used was when the snowball starts rolling downhill, if that snowball stops rolling, you need to give it a little nudge to keep it keep it going again. 
uh, there, and, and there's case law. These are fact specific cases. Um, one, one case where the broker sort of disappeared for, uh, uh, 30, uh, 60 days. And the court said, you know, you disappeared. You, 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 you were out of the negotiation on your own volition. You're not entitled to a commission. But I think that the broker generally should be involved in continuing negotiations. Uh, if the broker uh, abandons, okay, fine, it may not be entitled, but uh, and there's case law to that effect. But I think, uh, generally speaking, if the broker shows his efforts to stay involved and is otherwise excluded by the buyer in the yard, that's going to be a problem uh, for the yard. They're going to have to pay. Uh, and you know what? It's a very small world in, the, in that level. I mean, the brokers, they share information like you can't believe. Um, and um, it's not, not a good excuse to say the broker didn't do a lot because once, once they start that ball rolling and once they make that introduction, they're, they're pretty much entitled to commission at that point. There, there's even the concept of, uh, has been recognized in the art world, uh, the concept of uh, uh, quantum merit or unjust enrichment, which is an equitable uh, result. But the courts look at it and say, look, you know, we don't really need to see a written document. We don't need to see a listing agreement. We don't need to see a written commission agreement. We have to look at the facts. And if it's uh, a, a just cause, if the, if the broker has delivered value and the, and, the, and the seller has been unjustly, quote unquote, enriched by not paying the commission, then they, they, they will be entitled to uh, payments. And I, I can tell you there will be even more serious consequences if the court finds that the uh, the manufacturer torturously interfered uh, with the relationships that were had been established sometimes between the buyer and the buyers, what's called the selling broker. Um, and, and effectively, by definition, they, they are interfering by not recognizing the relationship of the person that brought the prospective buyer on their arm. I think it's a kind of a short-sighted thing, irrespective of who I'm representing, that um, – you know, it, it, the brokers talk. They 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 just absolutely positively talk to each other, and they know, and they will. They don't get out of bed in the morning if there's nothing, uh, if there's not something in it for them to pay their bills. That's how they make their living. Um, and I know of, uh, I know of transactions for sure, for sure, that did not go forward because the broker felt, you know, the yard will not, that yard does not pay commissions, and you'll see those yards down the road suddenly not getting the business they thought they. Were to, uh, in, entitled to get. So that old saying about how a, a, a verbal agreement or the gentleman's agreement is a you know is is good, really is legally good. It really is. I think that, and I think the maritime world, the yacht world, uh, written large, um, is a classic of oral contracts. Um, you, you see it throughout the industry. Um, um, now, if, if you're talking about yacht construction to kind of stay there, you, you do have uh, you really do need a proper uh, change order protocol. Um, you know, I, we mentioned specifications. You, you, you know, you, you have to have a list of variations. You have a you have to have a, a clear understanding of how things are changed. Uh, you know, how does it affect all the metrics of the of the yacht? Uh, does it um uh, does it harm the speed? Does it does it harm the fuel consumption? Does it does it harm the uh, navigational range? Um, you know, by changing something, does it does does it increase the noise level? 
these are to a yacht owner. Silence is golden. I mean, generally, no, no one no one wants a loud an, a loud boat unless you're got a magnum and you just kind of like the sound of you know very high decibel level. But for the most part, yacht yacht owners are they they love a quiet, vibration free yacht. Um, and all of these things can kind of be tested along the way. So at the end of the day, everything's nice and smooth and very pretty, and everybody's lives in the wonderful yacht world that is it really supposed to be perfect in all in all regard. Well, let's hope this conversation leads to some uh, perfectly smooth transactions in terms of some owners and uh, shipyards and brokers. You know, you do hope for that. Actually, um, one of the things that uh, I'll say this on a good contract: you have a you have a you kind of anticipate. Uh, you hope for the best, but sort of anticipate the worst. Um, and you can have a couple of levels of dispute resolution. Um, and, uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, it's a smart thing to do because, you know, at a certain level, you could just bring in a technical person, a third party who's unbiased, who's objective and, and knows what they're doing. And, uh, and they, you, you can save yourself a lot of headache and heartbreak to bring in someone who, for example, is a pain expert and they, they come in and say, you know, you know, it's kind of scientific. They do gloss readings and they do a lot of things these days to make sure everything's perfect. Um, and then if you don't satisfy, if you're not satisfied at that level, you can go to sort of full blown arbitration. Um, it's one of those areas because you, you do have buyers from America yards in, you know, Italy or yards in the Netherlands or, or, you know, one, 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 company that I've seen lately more seems to be doing well. Sun Reef, it builds, it builds really silent yachts. They build solar powered yachts and they seem to be doing very well. It's a Polish builder. The standards seem to be very, very good. Uh, people are happy with them. That's my standard. I don't care. I want everybody to be happy, but if I get an owner who's unhappy, then I have to look into it deeply and decide, you know, what, what do we have here? Is this real or is it imaginary? Is it, does it fit that band of acceptability? Uh, but where do you resolve a dispute between a, uh, an American buyer and a Polish uh, builder? And the answer, you know, it's, it's got to be some neutral venue and it's got to be objective uh, arbitrators or deciders. You want to call them an arbitrator. They're private judges, really. You know, Judge Judy, she's a private judge. She's not a real judge. She was actually an arbitrator. She's agreed to by the parties. She wore the, wore the robes and she made decisions. They were enforceable. Why? Because the parties had agreed to arbitration, but she wasn't actually a judge. He was actually a private, private arbitrator. Uh, but she would, but that's the yacht world It's most, a lot of disputes are decided by arbitration. Uh, they don't necessarily have to go into the federal courts, but if you do it, you're going to get a, a proper decision there. I favor the federal courts myself, but arbitrators around the world have a, they try to, I think they do their best to do their job. And it's one way of uh, resolving a dispute resolution, resolving mm -hmm. the dispute. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Michael, this has been really educational, especially for me. I have certainly learned a lot more in the past half an hour than I've known in, dare I say, three decades of being a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know when you started in junior high school, I was uh, I was impressed that you someone so young could be so knowledgeable. I think you and I met on a boat off the coast of uh, the San Juan Islands, as I recall, and it's certainly off Seattle, one of those places up there. You remember that? No, you don't. 
Yep. Oh, yep. It was out west. That's for sure. Yep. It was great. I love it out there. I have to go back. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in to our inaugural episode of the Yacht Law Podcast. Until next time, I'm Diane Byrne. And Michael, why don't you sign off? I'm Michael Moore. It's been a great pleasure, Diane. Thank you for moderating this uh, discussion. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you have any questions, please feel free. Reach out to Michael Moore. Reach out to me. And uh, we'll make sure that we address your questions on an upcoming episode. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Yacht Law Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to us for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, or your favorite podcasting service. Remember, the super yacht world can sometimes be complex, and the hiring of a lawyer is always an important decision. Should you need to retain one, the team at Moore & Company can send you complimentary written information about their qualifications and experience. Please visit the website more-n-co.com.